Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine and, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. podcast. Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room, Episode 9, the review segment for Friday, February 7th, 2014. Today there's going to be so much fighting in the war room, even more than usual, because it's the 50th anniversary of Dr. Strangelove, and it felt wrong not to talk about the movie that inspired the We, we can't just steal yes. the name. We have yeah. to talk about it. I mean, so far as legal is, legality is concerned, there's no movie that exists called Dr. Strangelove, but in terms of uh, actual cinema appreciation, we figured <laughs> we should talk about it, and... Uh, we all re- I mean, we had all seen this movie before, I assume, yes? Yeah, it's kind yes. of a film school staple. I mean, you got to watch it. It's all, I mean, it's a film history staple. Well, so that's interesting. Let's, let's start there. I'm interested about that because really? I did it. I think I've talked about it before that I, my family did the AFI Top 100 Films list. It's like a way to, you know, not constantly be re-watching whatever Disney movie we were, we were hooked into. So I actually got this, I think, earlier than I understood it as a satire. So before I even knew what the Cold War was, I think that my first Cold War movie that I really understood was uh, War Games with Matthew Broderick. Of course. It's tic-tac-toe. It's simplified, you know, nuclear war. Of course, it's what you should do. But uh, this was probably my first political satire I ever saw because I was pre-film school, pre-even knowing about politics. Um, You know, I thought this was a movie that had, like, two laughs, Um, you know, like... uh, Sergeant Bat Guano, or whatever his name was, which I knew was funny because Ace Ventura existed, and <laughs> uh, you know, like uh, I, the end joke, I could walk just because it seemed like that was the only joke in a movie, and so it's it's been weird revisiting Doctor Strangelove for me, um, as I know more and more about politics, and then obviously I've you know never saw it at a time period where the Cold War was really at the forefront of everybody's mind, so I've had to educate myself until things like a missile gap is funny. So it's one of those weird comedies that uh, undoubtedly is one of the better comedies, but because I was exposed to it so early, it was sort of like a text for me. I knew it was good. And I knew it was a good satire before I knew what either of those things were. Before you knew that you even liked it. Yeah. So in terms, that's interesting. But it's, I mean, it's funny on without, it almost doesn't need the satire because it's absurdist. So you can still enjoy it on that level. It's not surprising to me that you would come back to Dr. Strangelove looking for more. um, Right. Because you'd have to enjoy it your first time, I think, to do that. Going off this week's discussion of like spoof movies, those are movies that are very obviously you could tell where all the jokes are. But Doctor Strangelove, like something like I don't know, in the loop for people who lived through the Iraq War starting, hmm. um, is sort of it's funnier if you know the text that everything's being based on. Well, that's what's I funny th- about um, watching it for this time because I, the last time I saw it was as a surprise test at the end of a class I took on comedy in college. And Ooh. this class was all about uh, how comedy is based on margins of safety and you're allowed to laugh at things because it's presented within the, you know, the directorial context and the margins of safety and Dr. Strangelove are very interesting, which we can talk about. But anyway, um, what I know now about the cold war just from I don't know, being alive longer compared to being a junior in, in college is intense. So like watching this, there's just so many things that I think I got when I was seeing it in college or high school, but there's there's a 
the longer you live, I think the more things present themselves to you about how wars work and how, you know, absurd politics can be. And the more movies you see that are riffing off of Dr. Strangelove, I think the more it puts in relief how much is going on here. Patches, were you also a film school Dr. Strangelove intro? I, I, I guy? was, I think. I mean, maybe I had seen it on, on Turner Classic Movies or something growing up, if that ever played. I don't recall that. I, I have a... My experience is definitely from watching it again in film school, or for the first time. Who knows? Um, but I feel like I'm I'm almost on the same wavelength as you, Dave, in terms of or your your first experience seeing it. Um, I just thought it was a very well constructed comedy, and even today, I don't know if I know enough about the situation in which it was made and about the real life politics. You know, I know there's a real life Dr. Strangelove, um, who who was part of uh, building the H-bomb and, and in with the Russians and that sort of thing, that it's a lot, it's rooted in truth and all of these people are ref- reflections and refractions of real characters um, or real people. But I don't know if that ever really has informed my enjoyment of Dr. Strangelove to this day, as I've rewatched it many times. Um, I, but... Uh, it works on a broader level than that. We all know how the government works, and the more you learn about politics and war, as you said, Katie, I think that this spoof of that uh, is is frightening in a way that it's not. It's almost not a spoof. That's where the comedy comes from. That these seem to be extrapolations of political personalities, as opposed to lampooning anything. I just find it amazing that people could find this funny in the time of the Cold War that this came out when it did, because it's terrifying. It's so. I mean, it's absurdist, but it's also so realistic. Like well, the, the Times, the Times review. I was reading the Times review from '64 earlier today, and he, um, who wrote it, uh, Bosley Crother, and he did not find it very funny. I mean, he acknowledges that it is an absurdist comedy and that it is satire, but in the end, he's like not laughing. He can't laugh at any of this because it just feels so sad and despicable and true to him. And I think that's really interesting. And and he's kind of like mixed on the film because of it. In the end, he doesn't really get why anyone would make this movie. Like, why would, why would you want to stare um, the apocalypse in the face when you know it's, it's possible, when it could really be coming true at any given moment that we could be in a nuclear wasteland two days from now? It's, I mean, he feels the horrors of this film, despite it being insane and psychopathic yeah well sort of like isn't it the day after the actual nuclear holocaust film yeah the one from the 80s yeah that uh, reagan actually liked watching and passing around and that always seemed like sort of uh an after school special elevated uh, you know sort of a bit beyond where it is where i think like dr strange love is a really interesting study of mutually assured destruction Um, and it gets there by basically making all the key players idiots. Um, and because each of these characters, whether they be Ripper or Dr. Strangelove or President Merkin something. Mervin Muffley, right? Oh, it's definitely Merkin something because that's hilarious. It's, it's Merkin Muffley. Merkin Muffley. Yeah, they're both, they're both jabs at, um, fake pubic hair. (laughs) Yep. So I just like the idea that these very real ideas like mutually assured assured destruction and, you know, wouldn't it it wouldn't be so bad if we struck Russia first because, you know, we'd only lose like 20 million people in the 
uh, you know, blowback anyway. Those were all real ideas. And so you put idiots up in front of it and suddenly the performances don't have to be Kevin James and a talking gorilla. They could be full of subtlety and it sort of rises the actual. That's why I brought up in the loop is because in the loop is something that by putting, you know, not necessarily an idiot, but someone who is more clueless at the center of it and allows him to be the tool of uh, people with very strong viewpoints, it sort of highlights how ridiculous the, the whole adventure was. But it's also really strange to me how much this movie became part of how I identified Russia. Maybe it's just growing up. Maybe it's just growing up in the Cold War. That doesn't surprise era. me at all. But did you guys think that all Russian presidents had always been drunks when you were growing up? <laughs> no. No, but I, I didn't see this movie when I was growing up. Oh, okay. So maybe, yeah, maybe it was. Although this maybe movie I did first. just because of the association of vodka and Russia. I would just assume that. Well, maybe, but like, you know, you pre-Putin, it had some uh, saucy uh, Russian presidents or whatever head of the USSRs were called. See, I'm I'm being a bad historian already, but I do like this movie for all the reasons I've been talking about. <laughs> I, what struck me watching it again is how, I mean, we were talking about like the wall-to-wall jokes of spoofs, and I feel like this movie has, a, like, it really comes close to having that level of jokes where there's a like almost every other line is funny and it's funny in a different way than spoofs. It's not really trying that hard for it. And there's something about, you know, it, it makes sense that as a kid you would miss that it was a comedy because it doesn't present a lot of these things as jokes unless you know what you're, they're talking about. But I kind of forget how just through how, how it manages that pace and how it keeps going. I mean, it's, a, you know, it's 94 minutes long. It's basically a play. Like it's scenes in just a couple of different rooms. Like, does that, do you guys find that as impressive as part of, this movie's appeal. Well, that's the interesting thing, hearing um, Dave compare it to something like In the Loop, which is very um, frantic and caustic, and, uh, you know, it's all over the place, um, and that intensity kind of builds, and we feel um, how someone could kind of lose themselves in the, the swell of politics. Uh, whereas this movie, I mean, you, you mentioned that once you start listening to what they say, you might get the jokes, but... It, it almost doesn't matter what they're talking about in any of these scenes. I mean, we just need to know that someone pressed the button on this bomb that's going to destroy the world. And, oh, the plot doesn't matter. Right. I mean, well, they're babbling. Yeah. They're babbling almost doesn't matter. It's almost like the persona that they're they're delivering these lines in is is where the jokes and the comedy really comes from and it's slow and and it builds and you know you think about uh Merck and muffley's dimitri phone call it just goes on and on and it's really not about anything but it's almost like the repetition of dimitri and um fine fine i can hear you now fine um yeah. is just like it's it just goes on and on but it's it doesn't feel like um a family guy joke or something it's not about the amount of time it's just about the confusion and really and not rhythm. saying anything and not getting anywhere. And yeah, the rhythm and the words, it's, it's amazing. But there's also stuff like the, the precious bodily fluids. I mean, that feels like a Stephen Colbert joke. Like that feels like an entire running gag you would get in God knows what kind of political satire. And like, obviously everyone who's doing political satire now has seen Dr. Strangelove, but there's just the, the level of absurdity and like how it's just dumb, but it also fits so well into this world that they've set up. And I, I don't know if I agree with Dave that, that works because everyone in the movie is an idiot. But I think there is a level, it's almost like they're operating within the built-in idiocy that our entire world operates on. Well, I don't think they're any stupider than the people who are actually running the world. They're just well, saying things out loud that people wouldn't. 
Well, I mean, I guess that's true, but it's important that the audience understand that they're idiots. Like, people thinking that fluoride was brainwashing us actually happened. It's, it's still happening. It, no, 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 that's not true. I mean, it's, it's true we're drinking fluoride, but it is not brainwashing us. Don't, don't do that, Katie. That's it's not like brainwashing you. It's, no, no, no. it's giving you I, autism. Yeah, that's what I meant. Like there are people in Portland who are like, "Don't let it, don't let them put fluoride into our water supply." Oh my god! Right, but and we treat those people like people who want to debate creationism, even though they're idiots. We oh my give god! Off topic alert. <laughs> no, but the point being is that the reason the general's funny is because of precious bodily fluids. They have to stick in the Colbert level joke to make his paranoia to allow you to laugh at it. Because at the time, there was probably a higher population that didn't know what floridation right. people it has to yeah. sound convincing to like half the audience right dr strangelove would be a frightening character if he didn't act and dress the way that he did because he's actually not an idiot so the tick for that character is that he looks and talks so bizarrely right well but but basically oh good i was gonna say that sterling hayden as general jack ripper this psychopath um i mean you can see him saying these things about um fluoride and and only drinking grain alcohol and rainwater and people in the audience being like yeah he's that's right he says it with such conviction it's like <laughs> that's probably true maybe we should go home and only drink grain alcohol and rainwater and it's almost like this strange love has to be a joke for half the audience but has to be total truth and like believable to the other half it's 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 pranking people yeah, I mean, certainly not to the extent that something like the first two weeks of Spring Breakers did, but to a to a lesser extent, I think so. And then even for those people who don't see it, you know, as line after line satire, this movie has amazing pre- performances. Uh, you know, George C. Scott running around the war room, and obviously Peter Sellers. He is and- so funny. In this movie, George C. Scott, I mean, obviously Peter Sellers up for an Oscar and does all these roles, which apparently was mandated by the studio. I don't know. They wanted him to do more. Yeah, he was supposed to do four roles, and he wouldn't be the guy in the plane. Um, well, it was, it was the, that, that was the one, the, the guy in the plane. Yeah, with yes. the, well, the Texas sense. accent. Uh, yeah, it's the only setting where he wasn't, that makes sense. And, um, but George C. Scott is so, I mean, he just doesn't seem like a comedy guy, and I am sure he's done a, plenty of comedic work that I have not seen. Um, but, you know, you think about him in in Patton, and, and it's just a total, it's the other end of the spectrum and here he's like flying over beds and he's raising a ruckus in the war room and he's just going crazy it's such a physical performance when you know that peter sellers is capable of that he does it as strange love with the whole like nazi salute uh high you know my my uh you know mein Führer, mein Führer, yes mein Führer. um and he has a physical element to him but he's pretty restrained in this movie overall it's all these other characters kind of putting force on him George C. Scott and also Stephen Hayden or Sterling Hayden when um you know they're sitting in that room and he's kind of it's this weird sexual tension between (laughs) him and um the group the group captain Lionel Mandrake uh it's it's such it's interesting to see Sellers kind of be the low status character in all these scenes and I think that's the real strength of having someone like George C. Scott who is big and lumbering and he's a man and this movie is yeah. about men stupid stupid men yeah. and I yes. think it's, he's There's a real force the, the fact that you know the exposition of what's going on is all delivered to you by a girl in her bikini who's kind of like crouched on the bed and dictating this phone call it like adds this you know there's this whole stupid war started by men being translated to you by 
a woman in her underwear. It just that that extra layer of absurdity, I feel like adds a lot to that George C. Scott character as it, uh, you know, as he goes on into the worm and he's on the phone with her. And I know that's another one of the ways, that, as Dave was saying, like you have to set it up so that people know that it's OK to laugh within this world, that it's just that extra touch of absurdity. Yeah, and it's not a heavy-handed touch of absurdity like having a, I don't know, disaster movie titled Disaster Movie. <laughs> it's very it's very subtle. It's not called Nuclear War Movie. Right. Although I feel like if you wanted to do a modern version of this, you could call it Nuclear War Movie and that could play <laughs> into the overall satire but, because no one would ever say that these days. I mean, Strange Love is not that far off from a movie like Airplane to me. Because of how of the... straight you, everyone has to play it. I mean, yeah. it's all about a bunch of uh, straight-faced actors saying all this absurd stuff, but never really winking enough to be in the joke. Even when Sellers is playing Strange Love, I mean, it just feels realistic despite its absurdity. Yeah. Hmm. Yes. I mean, I agree with what you said. I'm humming about you comparing Doctor Strange Love to Airplane. I mean, I feel like that should be there should be on the same level, but I'm not sure they're comparable. They're just such different ways. Well, of- I think the performances are similar in how um, grounded they need to be, and whereas Strange Love will pepper the dialogue with some, you know, weird patterns, or will throw in a line. I mean, the whole grain alcohol thing reminds me of these kind of one-liners that, that the Zucker Brothers will throw in. Um, uh, you know, a good a good one is escaping me right now. Or, or have you ever ever seen a grown man naked? You know, th- just saying that coming out of like this this older man who's saying it com- with complete conviction. It's the same kind of thing. It's it's wordplay. Um, and airplane does it well too. Airplane also has insane things going on in the background all the time. But they're two different movies, of course. Yeah, I wonder if that's more of a actor thing than a viewer thing. I don't know. It seems weird to me to tell somebody to be in the same headspace for both Doctor Strangelove and Airplane. Because, like, I would say, Doctor Strangelove, you might want to be paying attention all the time. And Airplane, I would say, maybe have some beers the first time you watch it and some weed the second time you watch it. (laughs) (laughs) That's insane! Why? Because Airplane can operate on its own. You don't need to be inebriated in any way. No, but I think it's like, I think... Like, I get what you're saying in terms of the performance. Like, Leslie Nielsen needs to straighten his lines out like Peter Sellers does here. But in terms of, like, the audience, it was like Katie was saying, when you're dealing with comedy and you're directing comedy, it's about how much leeway you give the audience to feel comfortable in. Well, I wonder... And I feel like, you know, anything could happen in an airplane movie because they're making, you know, dirty jokes and puns and wordplay. Dr. Strangelove is very specifically supposed to be funny because it's so close to the truth. Maybe. I wonder if that's the formality of the direction, if that's just having Kubrick take it so seriously and make it seem like a political thriller, despite the script clearly being comedy. I I love how when there's that gun battle outside the uh, base where Mandrake is, how he he just shoots it like Paths of Glory or something. Like it looks like a war movie. And well, it's, it's a war really, movie, and they they shoot guns in front of a sign that says they're like peacekeepers. Oh yeah, or sure. That is an airplane gag. I mean, that's that a is, Zucker Brothers gag. That's true. And, yeah. and I just think that's but the formality of the direction. You're right. It's this feels like a war movie, and obviously all the stuff on the plane is very proper, and and there's a serious tension in the war room. Uh, but the words coming out of their mouth are so dumb. <laughs> 
I I want to I want to test the boundaries of Doctor Strangelove again because I think we could all agree that this is an awesome movie, and if you haven't seen it, you should. But if you're gonna watch it again, let me ask you guys: If Team America: World Police was done live action, would it be closer to Airplane or Doctor Strangelove? Well. Closer to airplane because, <laughs> I mean, that's still going for gross-out humor. It's going to extremes, and I think Strange Love is a slow burn. I I don't know of many movies, contemporary films that I could really compare to the tone you or the style it, of Strange Love. Say in the loop. Is, I mean, it's not stylistically the same at all, but I feel like the way that it operates within satire on something that feels kind of depressingly real is like that's a. Like, and I think very few other things have kind of gone for it that seriously. I don't know. I think about pacing a lot in modern comedy and how we may have lost the ability to kind of take our time. And certainly, I think one of the joys of Strange Love is that it it just kind of meanders. I mean, we're we're taking our time. There's no fast gags, uh, or and between it's jumping between these three stories, but it's not really quick cutting between them. You know, this isn't an escalating movie, despite it ending with the dropping of an H-bomb and a a montage. I mean, that's the one, I think, (laughs) cutaway joke it has. And it it, it uses it. It uses it wonderfully. But I think what I'm trying to get you to say, Patches, you, Matt Patches, need to tell me that there's a difference in your mind between spoof and satire. Um... Well, I don't... Well, okay. So I don't think that... I don't think it's a spoof. Um, which separates it from Airplane. I, I can, I will, I will say that they these are two different movies. <laughs> okay. Um, but because so, sp- I think in spoofing, we're emulating the style of a pre-existing movie. Airplane is very much a ripoff of. Oh my god, I can't remember the name. It's Airport. Pre- no, it's not Airport. It's called hey, really? actually it's called Zero Hour, I believe, and it's almost a shot-for-shot remake of this movie Zero Hour. Uh, I will have to look that up and correct myself if I'm wrong. But, um, yes, this is very much emulating another style in order to poke holes in it. I don't think that, and and I think World Police does this as well. It's supposed to be a Michael Bay movie, but about real things in in some capacity. Um, So it's still spoofing. Strange Mm -hmm. Love isn't a spoof. It's a satire because it's drawing on genre tropes and using a style, a political thriller style, but it's not necessarily attacking them. It's still telling a thriller story. This is a thriller. The dialogue that's coming out of their mouth is just idiotic, and so we're laughing. So I think it's still satire because we could be taking this... If the dialogue was more sensical or if we believed in what these guys were saying more, which is possible by just replacing a few lines of the dialogue... Then we then this would be a, a straight faced movie. This would be a serious thriller, and that's why it's satirical and not necessarily a spoof movie. Is it, is this what you wrote your film paper about? <laughs> I didn't write papers yeah. at film school. Are you kidding me? Fuck that. Oh my god, my I made movies. Worst. I think we just found a way to talk to Patches about a whole bunch of comedy this year. Oh my god. Because I've I certainly are there a lot of satires I, coming up that I don't know about. No, I mean just in general. I want to pick his brain about these lines he's drawing and the in the. I don't disagree with that. Well, more and more, think- certainly the discussion with Freeberg and Seltzer made me contemplate comedy on a deeper level. It's very hard to discuss because a lot of people will just say, "Oh, we're just throwing funny stuff out there," and that's what we do. We make comedy. We make people laugh. Um, but it, I mean, there's obviously deeper thought into it. And Strange Love is a hysterical movie, but it, I don't think it's operating as a spoof per se in in 
classic or contemporary terms. I will agree with the last thing he said. Yep. <laughs> I will Woo-hoo! agree with you. Also, even if you have, even if you saw Doctor Strange Love in college, like I did, just re. I mean, I this kind of makes me want to just watch it yearly. I assume it will only get better every time I watch it. Katie, did you mention something at the beginning of the podcast that you wanted to resurface something about maybe what you analyzed in college? Or? Oh, the the margins of safety thing, which is kind of what Dave and I have been getting into. Just the idea of like you set up things that are scary in the real world but are funny within a comedy, and you do it within certain margins of safety so people know that it's okay to laugh and. What's interesting, I mean, we were talking about how these characters are set up as absurd so that there is some of that safety there, but how it's also the real world context is so intense that it kind of, you kind of constantly feel like those margins of safety are going away and then it pulls you back in. And I'm sure I wrote about this more eloquently in my film paper, my junior year of college. But yeah, I mean, when you compare this to like Billy Wilder comedies of the time, which is what a lot of what that class was about, like the way that it's willing to throw away a lot of that safety to kind of push your face in this Cold War paranoia is is fascinating. I, I can't yeah. believe, it still startled me when it happened, but that Ripper commits suicide <laughs> Yeah, in this movie. It's just so dark. I don't know. Like, even if I'm laughing, I don't know if I should call Strange Love a comedy because it's supposed to be so startling. Well, I mean, it's definitely meant as a comedy, but I like what Katie was talking about in terms of widening, you know, you feel safe and then they make something a little bit more real and then they make you laugh at it so you feel safe again and then it gets more real and then it eventually expands to both the broadest joke and then they immediately have to destroy the rest of the world. It's, a, it's like a yeah. whiplash so effect. I, it's trying to go for yeah, like yeah. a whiplash. It's so as you, you know, you basically feel uh, you know a certain amount of uneasiness that i don't think really changes but it keeps trying to make you feel safe and take it away from you i like that reading katie it reminds, it reminds me of Strange the comedy with um tim Everything heidecker reminds you of the comedy. yeah that's stop that starts with penises though like how how do you raise i mean i get what you're saying about well, you not that's feel safe. that's going to the comedy direction and then you kind of whiplash back and forth i mean you're constantly thrown off by how real and true and horrible it is and even despite it making you laugh which i think yeah strange love does matt patches there... thinks dr strange love makes you laugh <laughs> makes you laugh i'm at 11 <laughs> Everything is awesome Everything is cool when you're part of a team Everything is awesome When we're living our dream No need to rock the boat When we stick together Everything is cool when you're, you're part of a team. You're yeah, Patches thinks that I'm wrong to like this song. Somebody tell me why Lego Movie is good or bad. Um, I don't think that Lego Movie is as good as Clyde with the Chance of Meatballs or 21 Jump Street. I think, I mean, as Patches and I are talking about with the ideas behind this very catchy song, some of the ideas in it are muddled. It kind of 
wants to have this hero who is learning how to tap into his own powers that he already has while also learning to be part of this world where you can do whatever you want with Legos. And that's part of the fun. And it gets a little confused in the middle of all of that. But as uh, Jordan Hoffman and our friend Jordan Hoffman and a couple other people have pointed out, it does this really great job of making a movie about toys. It is about how you play with these toys. And it's about how you can have this world of Legos. And the fun is you get a big pile of stuff meant for a construction site. And you build a Batmobile out of it. And you can kind of... You never throw... build a Batmobile out of it. Okay. Fuck that. Right. You build a flying motorcycle out of it or whatever yes. else. Or you can have Batman. Spaceship. Spaceship. And... Yeah, you have Batman in the same car as with the uh, 80s or 80s spaceship man. And there's a sense of like kind of jumping into your toy box and making all of this stuff come to life. And the animation is really fascinating the way that they have these plastic blocky characters who are interesting and do interesting things while still acting as if they are real Legos. Like there are very there are several parts of this where you kind of feel like you're watching something that's just stop motion built out of Legos. Have you ever played a Lego game, Katie? A Lego game? Yeah, I played a like, Lego game. Like a, I played Batman and Robin, Batman. Yeah, I mean they do franchises. Lego. They've done the complete Star Wars, Harry Potter, Indiana Jones, oh, yeah, Marvel I Heroes. Oh yeah, I forgot about those. No, I've never. But, like those. those all have extremely pleasant cutaways that don't have any dialogue, but have the same sort of style that basically retell classic moments in cinema. Which is why instantly when people are like, "Oh, a Lego movie," I was like, "Yeah, a Lego movie." Yeah. I've been watching those cutaways while people have been playing Wii for like years. Of course, I'd. Watch that in a second. I just think the design's really, really cool. Yeah, the design is, is really, really cool. cool. And what's neat is that they're not like just taking a Harry Potter story or a Star Wars story, that they're actually making it kind of about living in Lego world. Except which is, it is muddled. Like the message of this muddled. film is muddled to a, an annoying point because the movie is so furious in its imagery and its joke telling. It's just so manic. It's it's high fructose cinema. And um, I, I just couldn't, like, I left feeling very exhausted by this movie. In a similar way I did to Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, honestly. Um, and even more so the sequel, which they only wrote. But, um... I, I was just, I couldn't tell if I should be offended by this movie. Because I was a kid who put Legos together. First, I did it with the instructions. I liked using the instructions to build the thing that I was supposed to build out of them. Um, and then I deconstructed it and put them together in random ways because I was that kid and I spent a lot of hours doing it. But I'm just like, is it telling me that I should? I mean, in the end, it does tell us that maybe instructions are good. Or are they? It's so muddled. Yeah, it's about well, conformity. It... Like, the first third of it is idiocracy, basically. And then all of a sudden, We're maybe... That's a pretty. It's pretty brief. Yes, it is. If you are, if you like everything is awesome, you are a pawn in the machine, and you're singing this song, and you're watching the idiocracy TV shows where people get sure, kicked in the it, balls. Sure, but that part lasts like 15 minutes tops. I'm just arguing with you on. Timing. Well, 15 minutes is like a third of this movie. What is that? What? It also feels either like five minutes or 50 minutes because of the pace of this film. That's so frenetic. Um, but then, yeah, then it, it tells people, oh no, open up and you know. Be creative. Be your own individual. Make whatever you want. Or does it? It's so confusing. Well, I think it's, I, it's trying to tell people to be the kind of kid that you were. It's like make things with the instructions if that's the thing that drives you and then be willing to dare to change things up. I don't, I don't think, I mean, that's a confusing message to have in a movie that's got this much else going on, but I don't think that's a contradictory thing to say. It sounds like they're just telling you not to be the kind of kid that I was, which was insisting all the Legos stayed in their instructional place 
Yeah, because they were built to be one thing. God damn it! Yes, otherwise the you're the, of the you're, movie. Yeah. <laughs> you are you are the villain of this movie. You're the bad okay, guy. Okay, good. Well, good. <laughs> I mean, I understand why they would want people to buy more Legos, but like, come on, I'm not gonna take apart my awesome, you know, Lego thing because I want you know to make a dollhouse for my He-Man. Shut up, Lego. <laughs> Katie, you don't do your 3D or not column anymore, but would you I recommend don't. seeing this in 3D? Uh, yeah, I feel the same way. I have, I, I don't I, seem to I remember anything cool in 3D happening. No. But I was laughing, so maybe it's worth seeing. I mean, the animation is beautiful. I'm an animation buff, as people probably know, and I was pretty astounded by the stuff that they can do. You know, I hate the fact that it's such a branded marketing... You know, this was devised by ad wizards and completed by sharp, wry-humored folk. So, I, I mean, I feel... I don't know. My head's just spinning after this movie. I don't know how to feel, but I'd probably recommend it. <laughs> yeah, I still I mean, want. Oh, go ahead. I just made, because the animation last year was so bland. Yes. Basically. I mean, I liked Frozen better than I think most of you guys, but this is a very different movie from Frozen, and I'm glad for that. And I think that I like the style of humor in general. I like that kind of random, absurdist humor that Phil Lord and Chris Miller bring to the world, and it's a good alternative to a lot of what um, animated movies try to do for humor and. There's enough of it in there that even if the messages are muddled, like, I mean, I don't think if I wasn't sitting there trying to like being like, well, what is it telling me? I don't think I would have cared. Are you going to see it, Dave? Oh, yes. I see everything Lord and Miller do because I loved Clone High and it died before its time. <laughs> well, there you go. Dave, what was the lightning round question? Well, this week's lightning round question was in honor of the Lego movie, which apparently might be awesome. But what's your favorite moment of cinematic branding? Mm, I'm going to go first like I'm the guest. Yeah, you are the guest. You're not the guest. Uh, no, I mean, what, whatever. I'm the, <laughs> Everything I'm the is awesome. You're part of the team. I'm, I'm the one who got invited to be here. That's that's the way it goes. Oh. Uh, I'm going to go with uh, Twitter user Cold Milk, who said when Peter Parker couldn't find out who his dad was after a long Bing search in Amazing Spider-Man, should have tried Google. Bing <laughs> being all over it. Amazing Spider-Man was hilarious to me. That is pretty funny and very stupid. It's like um, when Webcrawler Alta Vista is very much in line in with Amazing mm. Spider-Man. Uh, I'm going to go with uh, at Muth Media, John Muth, who said, I want to say FedEx and Castaway, and I wish he would have, because that's great. But I mean, they made a time machine out of a DeLorean. Ooh. Back to good the future. One. There is, is a lot of... probably the one that Katie wanted to say, but I'm taking it away from her. I mean, Dave got to say the uh, the Pepsi, the future Pepsi from Back to the Future too. So you guys are just stealing my Back to the Future all over the place. That's true. It's a heavily branded film. It I is a heavily branded. It makes film. sense though. I guess it's well, heavily a, branded in the way that Man of Steel needed to be. I mean, I have branded. a trivia piece here if we'd like to insert that. But the sure. DeLorean is the only brand that wasn't specifically chosen for the movie because it kept a logo in between the '50s and the '80s. All other brands, Sinclair, Pepsi. Hmm. All their branded content you see was specifically chosen because its logo doesn't change. DeLorean's just cool. DeLorean's just, well, the point of DeLorean is that it was a stupid car to make, but <laughs> make it with some style. Yeah, if you're going to go back in time, you may as well do it in style. That's right. Um, I'm going to go with John Lickman, who said, branded all of it. That short from a couple years ago that was nominated for an Oscar. No. It's in the world. What? That's not what, that's movie. not the that's not the movie he's talking about. Oh shit! No, <laughs> no there's a there's an of? entire movie called Branded. Are you fam- are you not familiar with? Uh, it was no, from I definitely must last be, year. 
It's a dystopian future where corporate brands have created a disillusioned population. One man's effort to unlock the truth behind the conspiracy. Wow, someone Googled faster than me. Yes, thank <laughs> you. Uh, supposedly very bad. Lily Sobeski is in What it. am I thinking of then, that short film? Are there you thinking of film. the one with, um, like, pixels? Are you thinking of with all the video game characters? Yeah, Logorama. Oh, Logorama. Logorama. Yeah, that's my answer. Fuck all of you. A lot of people... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, apparently no one recommends Brandon, by the way, so don't see that film if oh, you haven't. Oh, never mind. I recommend... Chances are, if John Lickman's giving you an answer, he's trolling you. That's true. By the way. That's why I was surprised why he picked something that I actually wanted to pick. Diss. I was so wrong. Diss. Trolled. Trolled. Uh, that does it for today's Fighting in the War Room. We'll be back next week with no Doctor Strange love to discuss, sadly, but it will always be in our intro song, which is a nice thing to have. Uh, in the meantime, tell the people who you are. I am Matt Patches. I write on the internet and at places like Grantland and VanityFair.com. And I put it all on uh, MattPatches.com. I'm on Twitter at Mr. Patches. I'm Dave Gonzalez. I spell that first part DA70, as is my Twitter handle. Uh, I think I still have a column at Latino Hyphen Review, even though the studios are cease and desisting a whole bunch of speculation. And I'm doing Think Pieces at Pajiba. And if you didn't catch my Sherlock wrap up Screen Bites podcast, there's a link to that at fightingintheworldroom.com. And if you want to participate in the show, give us a call at 914 410 6450. I'm saving all those Sherlock podcasts until I've finished watching the season. I'm very excited. Yeah, don't, don't read my Think Piece on Pajiba this I'm week. I'm not. I am avoiding it specifically. Oh, oh good. I mean, mostly because I just don't want to read your stuff, but also because I don't want to get spoiled. Well, all right. Thanks. I'm okay. not coming to your wedding anymore. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, I'm Katie Rich. You can find me at Vanity Fairs Hollywood and on Twitter at Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-I-C-H. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back talking to you next week. When, but I know we'll meet again some sunny day.